Hey everybody and welcome to the Fathoming Heavy Podcast. My name is Andrew and my guest today is drummer Rhett Davis of Morgion, Grave Hill, Stygian Crown. Uh, but really, if I had stopped with Morgion, that would have been more than enough. Um, they were a very important band for me in the late 90s and as I tell Rhett, their second album, Solinari, is one that I spin regularly to this day. But last year, the Stygian Crown album showed up in my Bandcamp feed through my Transylvanian Tapes subscription, and I listened, and it's just this amazing record, which is firmly anchored in the traditional Candlemas style of doom. You know exactly what I'm talking about, um, with this incredible powerhouse of a vocalist named Melissa. Um, I dug in and discovered that Rhett is the drummer, the same Rhett from Orgeon, and I thought, ah, I need to talk to this guy. So we hear some of his origin story, and he takes us through his years with Morgion, his long-running death metal band Grave Hill, and into the formation of Stygian Crown. Uh, he's been playing in bands for most of his life, and he shares some great stories uh, from along the way, as well as some really rich perspectives and inter- about interpersonal relationships and band dynamics, uh, growing and maturing and dealing with conflicts, and kind of that intangible alchemy or synergy that can only happen with certain specific people at certain specific times. And in the midst of all of this and during the pandemic, he continues to work on new music. Stygian Crown is is active and, and currently writing, and he's working on a new death metal band called Ceremonial Decay. And I found out completely by accident yesterday, in fact, that he drums in a Venom tribute band called Sons of Satan, who are supposed to be absolutely amazing. Uh, so check this out. It was a great conversation. Really appreciate Rhett taking the time out to do this. We did it via Zoom. Audio gets a little wonky here and there, as we're all used to at this point. So at uh, some point, I'll be back in person doing this doing this thing in the way that I had always envisioned it. If you need to get in touch with me, uh, email me, fathominheavy at gmail.com. Find me on the socials. Um, I don't do a lot of posting, but I will respond to messages. Um, go to iTunes. Give me a rating. That helps with the visibility. Um, if you like what I'm doing, share it with your friends. That's all I ask. Uh, I'll be back again soon, I promise. And for now, let's do this. and practice and I'm sure that there's something uh, relieving about those instances you know getting together with people and playing music and even playing music a long time um, and I'm curious how old are you I'm 48 okay all right we're the same then yeah how did I mean how did it start for you I know some of the bands that you've been in but prior to like you know early 90s you know I have no idea kind of what your story is so like how how did you get into heavy music where did that start for you the first person that influenced music for me was my uh, my brother-in-law. It, it, well, it was kind of a combination of uh, being a kid in school and how other kids kind of introduce each other to music and to whatever the fab things at that moment. You know what I mean? You know how it is when we're kids. It's like, you know, one kid, you know, is showing off all his Star Wars toys. And the next thing you know, it's a Motley Crue album. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. so it's kind of like, it's kind of how, you know, how I kind of got introduced to heavy metal was between kids in school and my sister and my brother-in-law, because 
I really got the formal education on the really the ABCs of heavy metal from him just simply because um, he's a big Black Sabbath fan, big fan of Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd. He had a huge record collection. Um, I used to just sit there as a kid and I would sit there at my, you know, my sister's much older than me. So um, we're about seven years apart. So basically I would, uh, you know, when they, they got their own place together and, and I would go over there and I would sit and I would look at all their records and it kind of started there, you know, him just blasting, you know, Dio and, you know, just like, and it just really kind of, and then all these other kids in school, Hey, there's this band Motley Crue. And then there's this, you know, check out this band Iron Maiden. And then, you know, just, it, it all start, kind of started there. Heavy metal kind of like really stood out to me. And, you know, as being a kid from the eighties and that whole thing, it's like, you know, and then, and then once we really start, my best friend and I really started getting into metal together. He had an older brother, his older brother had, Oh, here's accept. And here's, you know, Judas priest and here's, so then we just started kind of learning about bands from our older siblings. And then as time went on we started learning about you know speed metal and you know all of a sudden metallica became this really important thing and then venom and and you know megadeth slayer and so me and him as young kids we wanted to start a band obviously because we're you know kids you know loving heavy metal and i always had a fascination with drums like i always had this thing where you know i just i was always making racket hitting things with sticks and whatnot it just it just for some reason i just had this thing for drum sets did you have anybody that favorite drummers back then like like was tommy lee Lee. yeah tommy lee for sure yeah tommy lee uh nico um john bonham neil pert i kind of started recognizing after I, i got my first drum set and i really started playing in bands like playing with other people I started recognizing that there was a certain kind of style that stood out to me drum wise than it did in other bands, like the bands that got really technical and overly, um, I don't know way to put it, like see jazz and things like that never jumped out at me. I was more interested in, in watching a punk rock drummer mm-hmm. or somebody like John Bonham or somebody that, that played D beats and like, really heavy foots like heavy feet heavy heavy hands like i really liked really powerful strong like very in your face drumming i remember uh, um, you mentioned dio did like was vinnie apathy a thing for you a huge influence uh, absolutely huge influence i remember when uh, my best friend and i went and saw dio and i remember watching and vinnie apathy had this huge white drum set with these drums that were like it looked like a roller coaster, like went around his head and stuff. And he'd do this crazy drum solo. And I remember at the time thinking like, I've never seen anyone hit cymbals that hard. I just remember thinking like, and it's like, he must like, he must have like a hundred cymbals, you know, cause he's, it just sounds like he's just cleaving them in half at every single show. And I'm like, this, this guy is incredible. I just remember thinking in that period of time, that guy is like the guy, him and Tommy Lee too, because Tommy Lee is just like, I mean, he just beat, he just pummels. And that's, that was what kind of drew me to drums with that. So not that I'm saying I'm not a huge Rush fan, because I am, I love Rush, I love Neil Peart, but I mean, I just can't be that guy. I'm not, <laughs> right. I'm not wired that way. Um, but John Bonham, mm. playing in the backbeat, that kind of thing was totally me in every way that just stood out to me for some reason and when I got drums and I kind of figured out how because I mean you know again being a kid I didn't have anyone really instructing me on how to set up drum sets and how to tune drum sets and I took drum lessons but 
there's this kind of thing where you only really learn by your peers. Yeah. Like once I got into the point where I got into a real band, like Morgion was the first quote unquote real band I was ever in because it was the first band that got an actual place to like, we went to rent by our rehearsal spaces. We eventually got our own lockout. You know, we spent money to be in this band. Well, all my previous bands were in my bedroom or in my garage it was just like, it, it just, we were kids kind of trying to figure things out. And then once I started seeing other drummers playing and, and sharing rooms with other drummers and seeing, I started understanding a little bit more about what I liked about drums and then what I understood about drums. Mm-hmm. Then by the time Morgion, uh, I think I really kind of figured out what my, 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 my style was by the time we got to Solinari. By the time we got to our second album, I think I kind of really understood what I was good at and what I was capable of and what it was like where my limits were I just kind of figured that out by that point I figured out exactly how I wanted everything to sound um, how I wanted everything to be set up what kind of symbols I wanted like it all just kind of it all kind of came to that point there believe me I went through all kinds of experimentation trying different things and you know double bass single bass double kick double pedal you know five rack toms two rack toms one rack tom i mean trust me i like i just went all over this stuff over and over until i kind of found what worked for me that's what you have to do right yeah but i I think with any drummer i think everyone kind of recognized but then again you know a lot of drummers too they really just kind of emulate who they really love you know like we used to um go to this this place called dc sparks it was a rent by hour place and they you know you'd, you'd book like three hours to practice and at that place we met these two other bands there. One was Phobia and the other was Mind Rot. And we became friends with them. And then the Phobia guys had told us about a rehearsal place that was a uh, lockout where you can leave your shit, not set it up and break it down. And we went over there and we, we got a room with Mind Rot and we shared a room with them. And then we moved into another room with them. And uh, by the time we moved to the second room, that's when they got Evan he was on uh, per, all the both the Mine Rod albums. Mm-hmm. Evan's a drummer on those two albums, and um, Evan's the one that later on went uh, to join um, Save Ferris, okay. and then that that guy. And I think that fundamentally, meeting Evan, watching Evan, experiencing that band, and experiencing his playing was probably all the lessons. Mm that I really, really needed until I met Zan from Divine Eve. And then I played drums for what would have been the Divine Eve album, but it became that Crimson Relic Purgatory's Rain album. So the two most pinnacle of people, I think, as far as, uh, as far as uh, influencing me on my plane was Evan and Zan. And Zan's not even a drummer, but it was like me imitating his drummer and then dealing with his, um, his personality, put <laughs> it, uh. <laughs> him, you know, just that he's as much as anybody would want to discredit Zan. The one thing I'll say is that he's very single, single-minded, very on track with exactly what he wants, exactly how he wants to hear it. He's very specific, and honestly, that was a teacher for me. It really was. It was taught me a lot. Stop hitting the fucking symbols that much. Okay. All hey, right. <laughs> play that part faster. 
hey, you suck at this. Play this better. You know, it's like shit like that, you know. And that's a perfect imitation of Zam, by the way. <laughs> and also kind of like learning um, to be in a band because these other people that you're making music with, and I, I, I've, I've literally had another guy I'm jamming with. I have another band I've been doing lately. And he kind of pointed out that being in a band is like being in a marriage. And he's like, you know, this person that I just met for the first time I'm in this room with, and I wrote a song with them. And by the end of this, this session, we're hugging, we're shaking hands. It's like, we've been friends for our entire life. And he's all, that's being in a band. And I was like, you know, and the funny thing is like some marriages end amicably and some marriages end very badly. And I've had both of those. Mm -hmm. So, and every one of those have been a learning experience, every single one, no matter what anybody can say about anybody you've ever been in a band with, whether it was positive or negative, it was still a learning experience, right? You know, no matter what, still and something away from it. Yeah. And also I think too, with me being older now, I kind of recognize that I'm glad that even some, even the people that, that, that I don't have a relationship with anymore, at least I learned something very valuable from being in a band with them, mm -hmm. you know, and what they brought to it was very important because that band wouldn't have been shit without all those elements, right. you know, it's, it's, it's like Stygian Crown when you're, you know, when you're mentioning Stygian Crown, I really think it's important that that band had so many variations of people in the band until it got to this lineup now. And then these songs that we recorded and, this album that we released, this lineup is, is, is the right chemistry. It just is. It just, there's something that really worked out with that. You know, I think that it's important that people should recognize that when they're in a band with people that, you know, it's not the you, it's not the you, you right. know, it's the us. Right. Incredibly yeah. com complicated. All, you know, it, it, yeah. because I mean, you're different personalities, different people creating this thing together and it's, it's a part of all of you. And there's a respect to it too. I mean, yeah. you kind of have to respect what you're doing. You have to respect what you're what you're delivering, what you're giving, what you're what you're experiencing. And I think sometimes, especially when when I was younger, I think I took I, I definitely took advantage of some of those things. I didn't really realize that this moment's really important. Right. You know what I mean? You're gonna remember this moment later, and you're gonna remember the moment whether it was good or bad. You're gonna remember it and think that you know, I took this whole thing for granted, or I didn't pay enough attention to this at the time that it was happening. And I should have been more in the moment. Then other times it's like, man, I am so fucking glad <laughs> I am not in this situation anymore. And I'm not dealing with this anymore. And I'm so glad that every, all parties have moved on and everything has worked out better for them, hopefully. Well, you look back on that stuff. And I mean, you're, you know, you started when you were really young. I mean, you were a kid and you were, right. You know, and when we were kids, we, interact with other kids in ways that as you know middle-aged men we might not do the same way you know there's some wisdom so true that. so you look back on that and say wow so true this felt one way back then but maybe this other guy had a point or maybe i didn't handle this as skillfully as i could right. or whatever and that just comes and you keep going and you, know, you keep playing in bands and hopefully yeah. you get a little bit better at at uh keeping things in perspective i know on my end i know that a lot of it has to do with patience I know with me, it's like, I never had a lot of that as a kid. I knew exactly what I wanted and knew exactly how I was going to get it. I was very pushy and very like, you know, this is it. Either you're on board or fuck off. That mm -hmm. was really my attitude. 
And I think that in a lot of ways, once it got to the point where I started backing away from that attitude, I think it's, it's kind of funny because I think in some ways it's important to know your limits. It's important to know others' limits, but I think at the same time, it's also important to know that, you know, sometimes it is important to stick to your, to your merits, stick to how you see things and don't back away from them. Because a lot of times you get pushed around to the point where, you know, you, you sacrificed or you, you allowed things to happen that should have never happened in the first place because you were complacent or you were trying to make someone else happy. Right. You know, and sometimes in music, it's really not about how everyone's happy. It's important. It's important about, it's important how, you're portraying the band and the music. If the music's no longer fun, if you don't no longer want to be a part of it, then don't do it. Right. Don't beat the don't beat a dead horse. Just, you know, move on. There's other music to make. You know, that's literally been my mantra on how much music I've fucking done since you know I was a kid up to this point. I've done a lot of music. I've I've jammed with a lot of different people, put out a lot of different output just simply because this is what I want to do. And as soon as I don't want to do it, I don't do it. And I don't apologize for that you know i think that i've really ruined some relationships in the past for my i'm at times my bad attitude and and maybe it was warranted maybe it wasn't but i definitely do wish that i think that if i could go back and kind of smooth smooth some things over here and there just to kind of be a little bit more of an adult about things then i would i definitely would would like to do that but at the same token, too, it's like, you know, we all kind of learned something from that as we were, you know, previously speaking about. And yeah, I think that's important, too. You know, hopefully that's, everyone took something positive away. That's really the important. Right. I mean, hopefully there's, yeah, in the midst of whatever turmoil there was and bad feelings, hopefully there was some something positive there, too, that doesn't get lost in the shuffle. I'm curious. Um, I mean, so you kind of talked about those bands that you were into. Um, I'm just real. I'm really interested in um, spending a little bit of time on Morgion, and you, know, you said okay. that was kind of like your first, maybe really serious band. You had other bands that you were playing in prior to that, but this is the the first big one, the and, first real band, first yeah. real band, really, yeah. And you're, you know, you were talking about um, the bands that you grew up with, which were all the same bands I grew up in. We have very similar trajectories in terms of bands we were into, and but Morgion stylistically is a lot different from a lot of those bands that you mentioned and it's really interesting to kind of put them in the in the context of kind of what what else was happening around that time and i can i mean i can think about doom bands and um you know i mean traditional doom bands funeral doom bands um you know the the peace fill bands my dying bride and and that stuff and and kind of connect dots you know in my own head but I don't want to just presume that that's where all that came from. So I'm really interested in kind of where did the, that Morgion kind of, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's slow, it's super heavy. It's got almost at times, especially on the second record, um, kind of a fields of the Nephilim vibe at times. I mean, I'm putting that into it, um, but I have no idea what, what the, the origins and the genesis of that sound was for you. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of where that came from, what was happening for you musically, how all of that came together? We have to start with the beginning is when the band started, it was myself and I had a friend that I had in a previous band 
that played guitar. His name's Mike. Right. We were both looking to expand our horizons. And um, we were both, I was 17, he was 18. Right. And I put out an ad in a, in a magazine called Screamer Magazine. It's this shitty, like, paper magazine. There was another one out there at the time, too, called BAM Magazine. Sure. This is basically like a here. local rag that you could go yeah. to, like, a guitar center or whatever, and you could get, like, a free copy of it or whatever. Right. Screamer had, like, a lot of, like, the Hollywood glam bands and stuff yeah. like that in it. I put out an ad. Guitarist and bassist wanted for death metal band influences Entombed, Morbid Angel, Bull Thrower, and um, Autopsy. This was 89.90. And um, months passed. And any call I got, I would get it from some 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 noob, somebody that just this had no concept of what I was asking for. And they call in, I you know, and I'd say, yeah, do you listen to the bands? You know, I listen to Slayer, Anthrax is like, no, Entombed, <laughs> more of an angel autopsy. And one day, uh, my friend Mike and I, coincidentally, we're both in my living room and we were watching and this. This is hilarious to even mention. This was, it was September 6th, 1990. <laughs> we're both sitting in my living room watching the MTV Music Awards. Swear to God. And all of a sudden, my phone rings. I answer it. And the guy's like, I'm calling about your ad. And I hadn't heard it from anybody in months. So I was like, you know, <laughs> man. He's, and I said, uh, do you even fucking listen to any of these bands? Don't waste my time. Right. Like, I was just pissed, you know. And the guy goes, yeah, dude, fucking Autopsy's my favorite fucking band. And I'm like, what? holy shit you know and then it started talking to this dude me and him like all of a sudden you know we're like talking for like two hours and it turns out to be jeremy pito and he's like i have a guitarist and i'm like well i got a guitarist and i go ahead mike's like sitting across from me i'm like hey mike you want to play guitar in a death metal band he's like yes I'm like <laughs> okay so we all got together and and we started uh you know long story short we started writing songs together and it was the, kind of the first time for me and I, I probably for them too that we all kind of felt like we were writing music like all the other bands i've ever been in just kind of felt like we were just kind of you know regurgitating the same bullshit that you know we were all listening to at that period of time and it's like you know it's like you know the the, the thrash top 10 you know it's just the same same old same old we're just kids trying to figure out how to play music but for some reason when the four of us got in a room and we started writing songs it really felt like we were writing songs like this was important and all of a sudden we're just like writing song another song and i'd never been in that position before because any other band i had ever been in that previous like we could barely play one song that we tried to write the, the week before couldn't even remember it or figure it out could never could never conjoin things together just like it was a mess we we're just kids that didn't know what the hell we were doing but for some reason these four guys me included could figure out how to do this it just was miraculous and then you know and then long story short you know we did our first demo and then we released a seven inch our guitarist mike came and went out of the band i don't know how many times and then finally finally we started getting older you know at that point it was all death metal in the very beginning and then all of a sudden we just started just getting inundated with all these other things like peace fills, like so amazing while we were doing this in the beginning of this uh, beginning of this whole Morgion thing, you know, we heard paradise lost. Mm -hmm. It was like, Holy shit. And then, you know, autopsy did uh, retribution for the dead EP and all of a sudden it's do me. Mm -hmm. And we're like, man, 
And then, you know, we heard that, then all of a sudden we heard this anathema band, and then we heard My Dying Bride, all these, all that stuff just kind of started coming out there in a period of time, amorphous. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden bands started being slower and more concise with their music, and then melodies were kind of creeping their way in a little bit. So disembowelment a thing? Yeah, yeah, a disembowelment, but we were, to be honest, I, I, heard, I heard disembowelment. I, the thing I didn't like about them was I just felt that they just kind of, me, their music meandered. It's kind of feel like they, they, they walked a mile to, to where they could have just done it in 10 steps. Mm-hmm. There was just like that something about it that just didn't quite, I liked it. Don't get me wrong, but winter mm-hmm. that was, that band was like, when I heard that, when I heard their demo, I was like, this, this band is like the greatest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. And then all of a sudden it was like cathedral. The right. cathedral demo too was like you know i remember the guys from mine rot they you know dan came in with the demo and he put it on and we're just like like how do those bass strings stay on that bass <laughs> you know it just sounds like they're made of rubber you know so like it's so heavy that's like what is happening it was like those little things like that death metal too i mean still death metal was still a real important thing to us in that period of time and then member changes see the thing i i really i, I think i really need to kind of bring to attention with this as far as style and what you're talking about it's not just bands but it's also personnel like when you start changing people within the band because it was always me jeremy and Dwayne. and when mike left we got different guitarists until we got to the point where we got this guy named bob thomas and bob came into the band and um i had this side band at the time and i was doing with this other this other guy who funnily enough came into more Gion years later and um, me and him were trying to write songs together and we wanted to be kind of more like kind of like Samael kind of more black metal but kind of like at that period of time black metal was really not so black metal you know what I mean it's like it's kind of hard to explain because everyone I think people now especially the younger people they they all this stuff didn't happen overnight it had this long term of growth years and um yeah and I mean like, yeah, of course, we heard Immortal and we heard Emperor. We knew who all these bands were. We knew who were in Pale Nazarene. All that stuff was all relevant. But what I'm saying is, is, like, it wasn't quite the position it's in now. But all that stuff, the black metal stuff also at that point, was kind of harder to get. I mean, you could find import shops that would have it. It yeah. was much more expensive. I mean, Century yeah. Media started putting out, you know, some of that stuff. But that was a few years later, you know, when, like, yeah. you know, Mayhem and, and Emperor was starting to, you know, Right, Country Media was doing that stuff, so that yeah. stuff was harder to get, and you could, you know, you could order it from the UK or, or Norway or whatever. But you had to put effort. Well, in. we had to step up. We had to step up here because we had a play. We had a record store out here called Wild Rags, okay. and Richard C. basically had fucking everything. Like it was like, yeah, walking into that place was like, it's literally like finding Mecca. It was like I remember the day I walked into Wild Rags. I mean, there should have been angels and horns playing. I just remember just like thinking there was like so much, I, it was so much to, to go through. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't go through it all. Uh-huh. I mean, it was just, it, it's like boxes and boxes of demos and vinyl from here to, you know, from one end of the room, to the other bands, I had no fucking clue who any of these bands are like, wow. It was just like such a, uh, just a time of discovery really. Mm-hmm. And basically what happened was, is that when we got Bob Thomas um, to play guitar in the band, it was kind of miraculous because that was the first time that we had ever got somebody that come into the band and he knew our music without us showing it to him. 
we were just blown away by that. Like we couldn't believe it. Hey, can you play this song? Yeah, we play that song. He's just playing it along like he all like he was always there. It was mm-hmm. like, blew our minds. And I was doing the side project, and my friend that I was doing that project with had this friend that played keyboards. And he actually was a piano player. He took like classical piano, like most of his childhood. Incredibly talented person. His name's Ed Parker. And Ed um, was doing that thing with my sideband. And one day I did the sideband practice before I had more jam practice. And Jeremy and Dwayne walked in and saw us playing. And they, they, as soon as they, those guys left, they go, hey, talk to Ed and see if he'll play keyboards for more jam. And I'm like, I thought you didn't want keyboards in the band. He's like, no, fuck that. Talk to Ed, have him come over and, you know, bring keyboards. So we brought in Bob and Ed. And as soon as those two elements came in, that's, that's kind of what the catalyst for what um, Among Majestic Ruin is. Okay. That, those, those five people is basically what made that, that EP. The fact of the matter is, is that we didn't um, have any intention of releasing that in the way it came out to also one number one um it was supposed to be just a four song demo with a split song uh split vinyl uh we were going to do a split seven inch with the divine eve at that period of time this was all in like 1993 94 and um that music sat for a really long time because we were in label negotiations quote unquote with relapse and we were again we're kids. Yeah. We didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We didn't know what we were asking for. We didn't understand the whole, it, all this stuff. So we were very guarded about our song, guarded about entrusting them with anything. So it was kind of like, it took a long time to get that, that, uh, that EP uh, out. And then they just released it all as five songs. So as soon as we did that and we played some shows and we, we kind of started venturing out of, uh, out of our local area, started playing like, you know, shows and Arizona and San Francisco and whatnot, our keyboard player quit. And that was just, I mean, in that period of time, it was probably one of the most devastating things to happen to that band because it's like, number one, we have a keyboard player. Number two, there aren't any other keyboard players. <laughs> you know, bottom line, this is not something you can find. And then there's him because he had such immense talent and what he brought to that band. There's, you cannot find that again. So it was, it was really devastating to us in that period of time. So us being us, we decided, okay, well, we're going to buy a keyboard and we're going to figure this out on our own mistake. (laughs) Stupid. And so we bought this keyboard. I remember Jeremy and I walked into, I think it was in guitar center. We went to guitar center. Jeremy had a credit card. And he's gonna buy this this keyboard, and we go and look at all these different models, different stuff. And this guy goes, the "Guys, it's showing us all these different models of keyboards and whatnot." And we're stupid because we're used to Ed had this like piece of shit, like hundred and fifty dollar Yamaha keyboard that had colored key, like it had these colored buttons on it on the on the top part of it, like green, blue, and yellow that you would hit to make the different patch, different sounds or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it was not a complicated instrument. A 10 year old child could play this keyboard. <laughs> so that, that's on a mom Majestic Ruin, just to throw that out there. That's that keyboard that you hear uh-huh. is that keyboard. So we go into this place and we're looking at these like, you know, yeah. you know three, $2,000, $3,000 yeah. keyboards. And the guy in the thing is like showing us this keyboard and he says, and he, he has, a, has a, a video instruction video with it and stuff. And he's, and he's telling us the exact words is this is idiot proof. And we're like, 
okay. And so Jeremy ends up buying the keyboard and we take it home to his house and we're sitting in his bedroom and we're trying to play in this video and we're farting around with this keyboard and we're both just like, we, we spent hours. And I said, dude, they found the two idiots because like <laughs> we cannot figure this out at all. Like not at all. Like we're sitting there thinking it's going to work the same way as this piece of shit Yamaha that Ed had. And it turned out to be like, no, oh, no, no, no. This, this is a computer, <laughs> you know, <laughs> very much so. So what happened was, is that uh, we started having a falling out with Bob. Bob, you know, was, I guess he wasn't happy. So he eventually left. But before he did, we met this guy named Gary Griffith. And he came, it's kind of a funny story. He came, we met him at an abscess show. We went to see abscess and uh, Gary was there. And our friend of ours, a mutual friend, was like, oh, hey, that's that dude, Gary, you know, he's an old friend of mine, blah, blah, from this, this band, so-and-so and whatnot. And we're like, oh, and we saw him and we thought he was this other guy that we all weren't very fond of. And we avoided him the entire time because we thought he was Tim. You know, we're like, oh, no, not that dude. I, I can't handle that guy. And so we come to find out it's it's Gary and not him. And so we we, we befriend him through our other friend and and we're standing there talking to him and, I'm, and we're like, yeah, we're looking for a keyboard player. And Gary goes, I play keyboards. No, he does not play keyboards. Ah. He goes, I play keyboards. And we're like, cool. And then he comes in and we, we have the keyboard and he says, hey, okay, he's all okay. Can you, you guys let me borrow it for a week and I'll, I'll play around with it. He went home and learned how to play keyboards. Seriously. He went and not only did he figure out how to use the keyboard, but he learned how to play keyboards. It should be stated that he's literally one of the most talented people that I, he's like one of those people that if he, you just put it in front of him, he'll somehow figure out how to do it. Immensely talented person. I just remember he comes in and he busted out. We plug it into the PA, we do the little thing. And all of a sudden he's playing keyboards and we're like, wow, we have a keyboard player. <laughs> and so we played a, a showcase show for relapse with him on keyboards and Bob. And then not long after that, Bob quits. So we're kind of at a point now where we're like, oh, shit, now we got to find another fucking guitarist. And we're like, you know, what the hell are we going to do? And Gary says, well, I play guitar. And we're like, yeah, well, we know you play guitar, but you play keyboards in this band. And we don't want to lose keyboards for you to play guitar. And he's all, I'll fucking play both of them. Sort of like, yeah, right. You know, okay, Getty Lee. Yeah, right. right. You know, <laughs> sure shit. Yeah. After weeks and weeks and weeks of practicing with them, he somehow learned to play guitar in parts that were required and keyboards in parts that were required. And it worked. It just did. And that lineup was the lineup that wrote Solonari. And nope. to be honest, Gary came into the picture with so much music he introduced so many bands and so much music and so many ideas to me and the rest of us that we it's 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 kind of like you you're getting instruction from somebody that's kind of like he found all these treasures that you were not aware of mm -hmm. and somehow convinced you that they're treasures too and that um it took a lot of fighting and infighting and whatnot but eventually everyone kind of started coming on board going you know what I really like Susie and the Banshees. You know what? I really like Bauhaus too. You know, like all of a sudden yeah, all these yeah. things kind of, you know, made sense. <laughs> Funnily though, there was always a common, common, uh, common thing because we all loved Phil's and Nephilim, as you had mentioned, we all loved Sisters of Mercy. And, yeah. but Gary kind of, uh, I think one of the biggest things is Gary kind of really centered 
on uh, dynamics. Gary's like one of the biggest Pink Floyd fans I've ever met. And the ideas that we, we brought to that band was basically how can we make doom metal like Pink Floyd? And that's basically what Solinari is. Mm -hmm. We wanted it to be, since I'm a huge fan of um, concepts and uh, it's like, I want music to be like a book. And so that was kind of the idea with Solinari too, is I wanted it to be this all one living, breathing thing. I didn't want it to be an album. I wanted it to be its own thing. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what it became, you know, over time and over um, a lot of rehearsal. I mean, anybody that knew us knows that, we were a band that loved to rehearse because we jammed like three days a week for years. I mean, we practiced a lot. We put, we rehearsed more than we played shows. I mean, we played a handful of shows, you know, because, you know, in the, the band's mind is like, we don't want people to get tired of us. So we play like once every three months, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? But it's it was like, an event when it happened. I mean, you guys, you, you prepared for it and it was a big deal. Oh yeah. But I mean, come on. I mean, yeah. to us, it was like, you know rehearsals like we just never wanted to leave our jam room you know basically it's like you know and i'll put you this way anybody that ever experienced that band in our rehearsal room was better than any fucking show that you've ever seen us playing it was like playing Mm. in our own little like uh, we were an own little bubble we had the sound in there so so perfect the pa was perfect it was like this perfect circle the way we had all the all the gear set up okay. how we had all the amps height you know we had them height higher up things you couldn't do at a show necessarily because it was out of your control yeah. yeah yeah basically it was like it was totally perfect yeah and you know and we played in a in a it was a storage room so it was basically like it was a 10 by 30 storage room. So it was playing in a tunnel, but we played on one end of it and everyone sat at the other end of it. And the music had nowhere to go, but straight down. So you were hit by it, no matter, no matter what, it was like the perfect volume of everything. Like it was hard to describe, but I've had so many people that I've known over the years that have come to rehearsals. Like, you know, like I would rather go to your guys' jams and go to a show. Mm -hmm. So just kind of, you know, yeah, like you said, too, you know, it's like you're control the environment, you're control of everything. Everything is absolutely how it's supposed to be that you're not missing anything. Yeah. So, you know, shows are so stressful and, you know, so coming out of that shell to eventually be that band that would go on tour and, and, and do that. I mean, there's another, another aging thing, another thing that helped in that growth, you know, for me learning that, you know, I don't need all of my stuff a certain way to play drums i can i can show up to any situation and i can make whatever drum sets put in front of me work for me you can adapt yeah yeah and that's kind of what that became of that eventually too but i saw morgion i guess around the time of solinari i mean i was i was trying to think about that it gets a little hazy but i'm sure it was 1999 in san francisco would be the contamination tour okay that's all right where was it it was at a club, I believe it was called the Cocodry. And it may have been in the afternoon, like a Saturday afternoon. What city? San Francisco. They had a bunch of shows at this club on Saturday afternoons. And you guys did one. And, 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 the, and who played with whom is blurry. But I know I saw you, <laughs> Soil and Green. Yeah, that's Contamination Tour. Contamination Tour? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, then, yeah, I saw you guys on that. Yeah, yeah. That's a show that Dino, <laughs> Dino got so fucking, I don't know what the fuck, and got to the front when we were playing, and he headbanged, 
through Zoom so that he cracked head open and uh-huh. he bleeding and everything we it's like this blood smearing all over his face and he's like smiling and laughing at us and we're like dude like, <laughs> like I'll always like remember that for that. That 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 stood out to me for that that alone. Yeah. That was also the last show um that we did on that tour with Today is the Day. That yeah. was their last show of that tour. That was I was just kind of thinking about yeah. like that time, like that era of relapse from like the second half of the nineties, basically, where you had yeah. I mean, you guys were putting out, I mean, Solonari is a monumental record. I mean, it's, it's kind of a masterpiece and it remains in my rotation, you know, to this day, but, but I mean, today's the day, uh, Soylent Green, I'm just trying to think of the other, I mean, there are so many great bands and it was so it was diverse yeah. uh, at, at that yeah, point. Yeah. yeah. I think Exhumed yeah. uh, was doing stuff with Relapse at that point. And then relapse had. They that. were on that show. It was Exhumed. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Exhumed would have been on that. Show. Yeah, and that's one of those. Well, that, we shared I, a van with them on that tour for like four, six weeks in a, a car, a cargo van with two uh, futons in the back, and eight smelly dudes. And everyone in Exhumed had uh, had uh, athlete's foot. Oh. I remember that too, because everyone, you know, the, the constant complaint of how bad our van smelled because the other vans would come up and go, "Oh man," <laughs> but yeah, you know. I remember Scott from Green pulled up to some park, and for some reason we were like sitting and getting in the venue or something. We're just sitting there, and Scott comes walking up. He's all, "Y'all's van smells like butt crack and stanky feet." And we're just looking at him, we're like, "Yeah, you're correct." Yes. Yeah, we were just like green, like had no concept of touring, had no idea, like you know that you had to leave at certain times and you had to do certain things. And you, oh. how am I going to take a shower? Right. <laughs> what is that going to happen? Right. And, and so that was kind of funny too. Like, uh, I, I remember at certain certain points we're staying at people's houses or whatever, and just like staying at the most disgusting hotels, and not even that, just sleeping in that smelly van, and you know, just yeah, it was that was an adventure. It was an adventure, to say the very least. Was that your so, first significant tour? Yeah, the yeah. first tour for us and Exhumed, both okay. of us. We were beyond green, like had no concept, like yeah. none. Like, I remember when we, the very first show of that tour was the Milwaukee Metal Fest. Oh, wow. And and we finished the, we, it was the last day of the Milwaukee Metal Fest. The next day, uh, we had a show in Lincoln, Nebraska, Okay. So anyone that owns a map and you see Milwaukee mm. and Lincoln, Nebraska, they're no fucking, they're not even remotely close to each other, not even a little bit. And I remember the night, you know, the night before we're talking to relapse guys and each relapse guy goes, oh, you know, it's, you know, it's like, you know, seven hours. And we're like, oh, okay. Next guy, oh, no, nah, dude, it's, you know, it's like five hours. I said, oh, three and a half, four. Dude, you guys, you'll just blink your eyes and you'll be there. You know, we're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so the next day, of course, we slept in our, uh, our place, the place we were staying until about noon. And then we even fucked around even from then and got food and whatnot. And I remember at one point we stopped at a truck stop and one of the guys in Exhumed won this, uh, this, I swear to God, it was a stuffed animal that looked like it was wearing a uh, hazmat suit like a spaceman thing that looked more like a hazmat suit than a spaceman thing. And the contamination tour had a, had like a, a guy in a hazmat suit kind of thing on the thing. So we, you know, we, we, we made it our mascot 
and someone took a drumstick and like shoved it up its ass and we would fucking like you know we'd hold it around like you know you know we're playing with the thing like it's a doll or whatever but anyway when we got that thing we stood out in the in the parking lot of this this truck stop after eating Popeyes or whatever and we're standing out there and for some reason we just start deciding to play hockey sack with this contamination man guy and we start kicking him back and forth around in circle for like an hour and a half and we're supposed to be driving to Lincoln Nebraska <laughs> so finally we're we're we start realizing about a couple more hours on the road we're like well how fucking far and then we see a sign that says Lincoln Nebraska and it was like it was like 400 some odd some odd miles and we're just like how far is that? And then we start doing the math. Like we go 80 this entire time. And then, you know, so we showed up to the show about 10, 30, 11. Yeah. By the time we showed up and we were the opening bands, by the way. <laughs> and so they just went, you know, Sun and Green and today's the day. We're already there. They already played the show. We come pulling up and they're already loaded out and they're starting, starting to drive away. They see us and we pull up we're like, where the fuck were you guys? Like, uh, you know, so the first technically the first show of the tour we missed we just completely missed so it was kind of comedy of errors like that from that point forward did you play that night no we ended up no we ended up missing the show and then uh the ben from sun and green found a hotel for everybody to stay at that was like 25 dollars a night and the reason it was $25 a night is because the entire room is covered in insects. That was great. You know, you just pull the blanket off the bed and there's like, you know, an army of insects. And then you, there, there was like a, a refrigerator in there. And amazingly enough, you'd open the refrigerator it was full of insects the inside the refrigerator. You know? like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're like walked in the room and, and uh, I, I think a couple of guys are merging on to see the room and they go, I'm sleeping in the van. Yeah. Like six of us slept in the van, basically. The yeah. two of us braved the, the motel room. And I'm sure you brought some of those. Yeah. yeah, with yeah you was, to yeah, make was, the athlete's foot and everything else. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was, <laughs> I think there was one point on that tour that I think all of us had gone like 10 days, maybe 11 days without a shower. Yeah. Like no bathing at all. And I remember we got to Colorado. We were in Denver, Colorado, and we stayed with one of the guys from um, Cephalic Carnage. Mm. And he had this huge condo, this like huge place, like this bitchin' house. And we all walk in and I just turn to him. I'm like, dude, do you have a shower? He's like, yeah. And I'm like, do you have a towel? He's like, yeah. I said, can I use it? He says, yeah. I said, can you show me where it is? I said, yeah. And he takes me over in there and he hands me the towel. He's like, go at it, buddy. And I go into the shower and I just remember looking down and like the, the floor is green and blackish colored, you know, because of how gnarly it was for me not showering for like the end of two weeks or whatever. <laughs> and then I heard, I always hear these stories about like rock stars that would like, like see how long they could go without taking a shower and then like get with groupies and like see if they could stand the smell of them, you know? <laughs> and uh, I was like, I just, I, I just don't get it. Yeah. How that's possible. But yeah. That, that, that tour was, yeah, you caught like the second to last show of that tour. What did it end in LA? Portland. Portland. Okay, you went up. Yeah, we did we were in LA for a couple of days off and then we did we did LA and then Frisco and then Portland. And okay. that was it. The long drive from Portland. But then after Solinari, I mean that was kind of it for you guys for a, a while. Yeah. Five years. We were the band that released something every five years. Did you stop <laughs> playing that time? I mean, did, uh, did Gorgion stop and get back together later on? Yeah. Or just, well, yeah. what happened is, is that we basically got back from that tour 
and uh, all of a sudden we started getting offers to do other tours. No, I'm not going to point any fingers and say anybody did something wrong or whatever that, because that's just childish. But basically, we did that tour, and then the four of us just could not be on the same page if we tried. And I, you know, as soon as I found out that we had this tour, this other tour, I mean, we could have spent the rest of that year probably touring, really. We could have been on the road for majority of at least half of the 2000s, you know, or at least a good chunk of it, if anything. And everybody has their reasons. Everybody has their story. That's fine. But, you know, it just didn't happen. And I remember being so frustrated with that situation because that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to play. I wanted to keep this going. You know, I wanted to, I didn't want the momentum to stop. And there was a falling out. And I just decided that, you know, I'm out. Yeah. So I left and a year and a half later, we got back together and uh, we started writing songs for the Cloak by Ages album. And in the early part of that, we started having problems again uh, with each other. And it turned out that it was kind of a three against one thing, except this time, you know, it's, it, you know, everyone had their issues with one particular person. And then all of a sudden they were out. And then, you know, we were looking for a whole new band at that point. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, you know, it's just, it, it's, it's really difficult to talk about because yeah. there, there was so, so much inner fighting between myself and, and uh, Jeremy mm -hmm. that just like him and I just like, we no longer were friends, you know, no matter what I said, or no matter what he said, it's like, we just were at odds, no matter what happened, no matter what, whoever story is with what in the end the band wanted to continue and it, it just didn't continue with him. And we moved on with, uh, we got Justin to play bass. Who was that guy I talked about previously that um, I had that sideman with, with Ed. Okay. He came into the band. I asked him to come play bass. And then we uh, basically got Adrian from mine rot to sing okay. for us. Yeah. And he came in and then all of a sudden we're this five piece, which, you know, with a singer, which we had never had someone just singing, someone just playing bass. It was always Jeremy playing bass and vocals. And so that was kind of an interesting period because it was all of a sudden, this is me just speculating. This is just my opinion, but yeah. I just felt like the band wanted to grow. And I remember a lot of conversations with Gary and both of us were wanting the band to not do Solinari too. Mm. We wanted to, we wanted to spread our wings and we wanted to develop push the envelope a bit, develop, uh, you know, into something more. And the ideas that we had for Cloak by Ages was that result. I think in that period of time, it's kind of funny, but in that period of time, I remember getting compared to a pathologist. I have never been a fan. So say it again. I'm sorry. You, you being compared oh, to who? We were being compared to a path, oh, especially okay. that, that damnation record. Okay. Yeah. And because it just, because that album had just come out, like, just a little bit before that and i i mean to be honest I, i've never been a fan of opeth none of us were really and you know i remember at that time that's what people were comparing it to i think the production on the album uh i think it was definitely weaker than a lot of the other albums there were so many interesting elements to that it kind of i i look back at it now, at the time i was so happy with the music but looking back on it now uh, I, there's so many things about that whole situation that disappoints me is like one is because it would have been great to been able to do that album with Jeremy for all of us to kind of find 
some kind of middle ground. Yeah. But then again, it would also would have been great to do that album with Jeremy and Justin, to be honest, if Jeremy did vocals and Justin played bass. Yeah. I think that would have been the greatest band we could have ever been. But I also think that it was very important that we played with Adrian because Adrian was just an amazing person to play with in general. He's a great singer. But things going on in his life and whatever was going on with the band, it's like he was going one direction, we were going the other. So that just really didn't work out either. And to be honest, when I think about the third Morgion album, I think about more about all the trials and tribulations yeah. that we went through over all the good things. There were way more shitty, just just it's really hard things to get through in that period of time than there was actually good things. Um, we went to Europe. That was awesome. You know, we put out that record, but I just really felt that that record was not the, uh, it wasn't the music that was, it represented us fully, I think. It could have been better. Not better. I just think it could have been different. I think it could have been more, more towards what we had done previously. I think if Jeremy was involved, I think it probably would have been a bit more like our, our previous stuff in some ways, I guess. You know, there's, there again, you know, just again, I, and everything I'm saying here, it's definitely not on being a downer on anybody that was a part of that band. Gary, Dwayne, Justin, any of them. Sure. Everyone did was right, did what they could, did the best output that we all could do at that period of time that we were happy with. You mm-hmm. know? Right. And me being older now, and you know, different mindset, I can I see that a bit more clearly. Sure. Um, I'm sure that other guys in, within the situation might argue that, but we put out what we did i mean i think there's some really strong material on that album there's some great songs of that record i just think that the output could have been i want to say better because that's not i just can't think of it (laughs) i mean it sounds like it just wasn't it's not better it wasn't quite realized in the way that you you thought it potentially could be and it sounds like that point has just over the years gotten stronger for you Uh, potential it had the potential there was potential that it's missing that would be the best way to put it had Gravehill been a thing at that point, or did that come after? In between my time out of Morgion, in between the, the Cloaked record and Solinari, yeah, I had quit the band, and I took some time away from music for a bit. And I met up with an old friend that worked at a music store, and he and I would ride home together every day. And we would, we would talk about all these absurd bands that we wanted to start. And just we came up with all these just idiot, just I don't even I'm not even going to cover it. this just the absurdity of the whole situation is just so dumb but you know we had so much fun just talking about their stuff and then you know every day we'd drive home and he would you know put on whatever tape some other something he's all this is my hell metal holocaust mix <laughs> yeah. I'm like yeah he put on his Sodom and Slayer and like I was right. like yeah you know we're all you know living our childhood we're like fuck yeah and then he goes dude we should totally like for real form like a like a you know black death thrash kind of band i mean he's like you know celtic frost and sodom and slayer and i'm like yeah that would be badass and he's like yeah let's do it he's like i know this kid and i'm like okay so he introduces me to this kid shane he's like hey you know this is what we want to do and shane was totally about playing guitar so we kind of threw some equipment together and we went to there. this kid Shane had another band and we went to his band's jam room and we started writing songs together and within like an hour we had a song we're like this is fucking awesome and so funnily enough in that some months before that when we were me and him were driving home together from work I had told him about 
now bring Zan up again. Zan had uh, moved to LA some a while after uh, we did the Crimson Relic album, and Zan had told us a story about he's like, yeah, I was at the whiskey, and I met this fucking dude from Switzerland. We're like, yeah, and he's like, yeah, and it turns out that he's friends with Tom Gabriel Fisher, you know, Tom Warrior. We're like, no shit. Like, yeah, he went to school with them. They grew up together. Like, cool. He's like, you know what Hellhammer's name was before Hellhammer? Like, no. Oh, Gravehill. So I told my Mike, the guy, you know, in the band I was performing this band with, I say, dude, we should call the band Gravehill. You yeah. know, and Mike, you know, Mike's like, what? And I told him the story about that story that Xana told me. He's like, dude, that's fucking badass. We're totally gonna call the band Gravehill. So the three of us put together this demo. And we recorded this, <laughs> we, record, <laughs> we recorded this demo at this dude, this dude, it's not even a recording studio. We went to this place and this guy we knew had a, a, an eight track recorder, it was eight or 16 track, I can't remember. And he set up the whole thing in this guy's body shop. And so I'm in this bay next to a 57 Chevy with my drum set next to it. And we're <laughs> recording the Cranville demo it was like such a ridiculous experience because I just remember playing turn it over looking and there's a 57 Chevy right next to me and <laughs> and then you know there's like a there's like a motorcycle over there in the corners all those stuff and I'm like I can't believe I'm doing this and so we finished the, we did that demo and then um it just got to the point that uh the guys asked me to come back to Morgion so I, I I decided to go back and so I was kind of doing both bands I was doing Grayville and I was doing um, Morgion and we shared a jam room together with those, with that, that Shane's other band. And this thing was great in the beginning. And then it just kind of turned out that, you know, Morgion, you know, started having, um, you know, ideas about, you know, we were, we were going to start, we we're going to play uh, Europe for the first time and we we're writing music and we we're doing stuff. And these other two guys that I was doing Gravel with, they just really didn't want to do anything. They just didn't, they didn't want to play shows. They didn't, even when we recorded this demo, they didn't even want to release it. They Mm -hmm. just wanted to like only give it to a couple of their friends or whatever. They wanted to, they had this kind of like elitist kind of like Mm -hmm. weird idea that no one would ever fucking hear this band. And I was like, what's the point of doing this? (laughs) And we already had like a few songs already written to do another demo. And I was like, what's the point of doing this if no one's ever going to fucking hear it? you know right right and so um i kind of bailed i just bailed on it. I said, you know i'm not going to do this with you guys anymore so they they moved on and and then uh i went back to morgion and then we started working on uh the third album and then the tour and then but yeah Gravehill came in between those two and Gravehill has been is is it still going yeah and i know that people in it is. are also playing with digi and crown yeah, the Gravehill story is basically after I had done that demo, I had finished doing this band after the Morgion experience ended because Justin and I went on to do this band, King of the Crow. Right. And then when that whole thing ended, I decided that period of time, I was like, you know what? I'm going to pack my shit and I'm going to move to another fucking, another state and find people i've never met before and stuff and i'm going to form another band to do something else i'm going to at the time i was thinking about moving to portland oregon and i was like i'm just gonna pack my shit and move to portland fuck this start over I was like yeah i want to start over everybody out here sucks fuck them you know i was <laughs> just totally pissed off and like you know i was like fuck this shit you know and then all of a sudden i, I mike abominator and i have been friends forever i mean he, he we've been him been friends 
since I started Morgion. Mm. I mean, that's how long I've known Mike and I've been friends forever. And Mike called me and he's like, Hey, you know, what's going on? And because he knew I had, he had this death metal band at the period of time. And I had done some shows with him in Keen of the Crow. And he, I told him, you know, that the band basically folded and we broke up and, you know, I was fucking, you know, I'm, I'm fuck this. I'm moving to Portland. Fuck all you guys. I'm done. You know, I'm moving out, I'm moving away. And he's all, let's just start a band together. He's all, I'm, I, you know, I'm not happy with what I'm doing right now. And I want to do something else. And I want you to play drums. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know. And he's like, yeah, you know, come on, let's just do it. Let's do it. He's all, I'll get, I'll, you know, we'll, we'll find some people. And at that period of time, he had that band. He, his guitarist in that band was Bob Babcock. And uh, I, we had played with him before. And I was like, if you can get Bob to play guitar, then I'll consider it. So then Bob agreed. So then we're in a room, me, him, and Bob, and Bob's buddy, this guy, um, Kyle. And we started writing material right then and there with Kyle. We wrote like three songs with Kyle. And then in between us writing these songs, Mike says, let's just, let's, let's just call the man, let's just, this is Gravehill. Mm. Well, no, well, Gravehill was me, Mike, and Shane. I said, this is, you know, this is us. And he's all, just talk to Mike and, you know, smooth it over with him, make sure he's cool with it. If he's not cool with it, then fuck it, we'll call it something else. So I said, okay, so I contacted Mike and I said, hey, are you cool with this? And he's all, because you, you and Mike, the other Mike, he's all, you and Mike are doing it. He's all, of course, he's all, you know, you guys are the right guys to do it. So you guys do it. So I'm like, cool. So then we called the band Gravehill and we just basically took this, we used the same logo, the same stuff that we were going to use for that other band that never released anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we had that demo. We, we sat on that practitioner's demo that entire time and it never got released. And then sometime later, Mike, uh, Mike Apocalypse um, had his label that put out all his Gehenna stuff, had them put it out on vinyl. And so it did finally get a release. Okay, good. But it was that version of the band. Yeah. And, but this version was me and Mike Abomini. Okay. So then me and okay. him started that fine. It was kind of funny because I think both of us were so jaded over um, the previous projects that we did that we were just like, you know, I'm not going to take any shit. Mm. I'm going to do exactly what the fuck I want to do. And everybody's going to be on board with us or they're fired. Fuck them. We're kicking them out. <laughs> it's like, we were so like, we're, we're just like, we're just like, fuck this. I'm not taking shit from anybody anymore. Zero you know, Mike and I were so like hardcore. Like, ah, if the yeah. guy doesn't show up to practice, he's fucking out. If That's the guy it. fucking yeah. fucks up his shit, he's out. You know, like we're just totally like, you know, all tyrants. It was all funny games. I mean, to be honest, as soon as, as soon as we like had a lineup for that band, um, it became one of the most fun things I ever did. Because all of a sudden, I went from being in bands with people that were just so, like, everyone's so passive-aggressive, and everyone's so mopey, and, like, you know, and I, then I, I, go, I go to Greville, and it's like, everybody just wants to drink beer and be an asshole and listen to Sodom, you know? <laughs> it's just like, right. I, it's like, it's like I'm, I'm 13 all over again, you know? Right. It's like, hey, let's just, let's just get a lot of blood, and we'll just fucking cover everything in blood. <laughs> And I swear to you, I have more hilarious stories about Gravehill than I had in any other band I've ever done. We there were so many ridiculous things that happened with that band, and we were just always just all we wanted was just to have fun, you know. And all of a sudden, I think that when I got involved in that, I, I kind of realized that 
you know, I'm in control of this whole situation. I can decide how I mm. want to feel about what I'm doing. Mm. And mm. that if I'm not happy, then fuck it. You know, I don't have to do it. Or I don't have to have a person in this band with me. If they're not happy, there's the door. And so that's how that band became. I mean, we, we had a, Jesus, we've had a revolving door of people in and out of that band, but that's because that band was that way. It's like, we were just like, you know, you're either with us or you're not and you're on board or you're not. And, mm -hmm. you know, you give your hundred percent or don't be here. And that's kind of how that became. And then all of a sudden you just kind of realize that you're in this room with all these like-minded people right. that all just would be like, I'll, I'll drive this van till the wheels fall off. Mm. I'll play every fucking show that'll come my way. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes, you know, let's, yeah. let's just, you know, let's just literally get thrown out of every place we play, you know, whatever it takes. It's like, you know, yeah. and then being in a band with Mike too. So yeah. that'd be the other thing too, is I, I, I think that all those years that me and him supporting each other's bands and then being in the same band together, was probably one of the the things I needed more than anything in that period of time, mm -hmm. honestly, was, you know, to like feel like I'm in, in the band with somebody that I, I'm completely on, on board with 100% and they're totally on board with me. That must have been a relief. Yeah, absolutely. It was fun. It was, like I said, it was a lot of fun. Well, but, you know, to answer your question, you had said if the band was still going, the band is still going. Um, I've just decided to put it on hiatus that was like, like we were talking about the wheels falling off. I'm going to go till I can't, I can't go no more. That band, I just, I just kind of feel like I need a break from, I need, I need to kind of, instead of just like, you know, just throwing it out and saying, fuck it, I don't want to do this anymore. I'd rather just put it aside and come back to it when I'm ready to come back to it. Okay. You know what I mean? Cause yeah. we've had so many people in and out of that band and everything else. I just kind of feel like I want, that band to kind of be something that kind of naturally happens instead of me forcing it forcing it right those no, no more square pegs and round holes and to be honest stygian crown started you know we started once we got melissa in the band it just really started to move and then all of a sudden all these shows and all these things started happening for the band and and it just like opportunity fell out of the sky and i'm kind of like i think this band is more my priority at the moment how did Stygian Crown, I mean, what was the, the impetus to start that stylistically? It's obviously, you know, a lot different from Grave Hill. We're talking sort of, you know, old school, traditional candle mass type doom, which is some of my favorite stuff. And I'm a huge fan of Stygian Crown. The album is great. It's one of my favorites from Thank last you. year. Absolutely. I, and I just keep playing it over and over again. So, so you've got two in my um, regular rotation. Um. <laughs> I've succeeded. Success. <laughs> yes, I know uh, that's what you were well, going for. Um, so oh, I really yeah, interested exactly. in Stygian Crown. Where, sort of where did that um, birth from, and how did you find Melissa? Because she is really um, obviously you know a standout part of that. Oh yeah, band. Melissa is like. I'll put it this way: if there was such thing as a lottery. And winning the lottery of singers, I won that ridiculous jackpot of, <laughs> you know, $948 billion or whatever. That was Melissa. I yeah. mean, the Melissa story is funny in so many different ways because I've known her a long time. 
like, I mean, we know each other. I mean, it's not like we're like, we hung out all the time or whatever. I mean, I, we knew of each other. We've seen, we have mutual friends. Sure. Okay. So we would see each other at shows or certain things. And I knew her, she knew me, you know, we're friendly, but we weren't yeah. like, you know, you know, when are you coming over and we're going to barbecue, you know, like we, we didn't become closer until we did this band, but sure. I knew of her, she knew of me, but we had this mutual friend. His name is Bob Cassie and Bob basically, uh, <laughs> funnily enough, Bob introduced me to Jason and Jason is the bass player of Grave Hill and the bass player of Stygian Crown. Okay. So Bob literally gave me Jason and Melissa in my life. Right. Okay. Unfortunately, Bob is no longer with us. He passed away a few years ago. Ah, okay. And it really sucks because, you know, like he would be over the moon. <laughs> and you have no idea. He'd be over the moon. He's literally one of the most fun, you know, most interesting people I've, I've ever known in my entire life. And, um, oh man, you know, choked up for a moment here. Yeah. Um, he just, you know, he, he interests, he's like, hey, this is my friend, Melissa. And, what ended up happening is, is that um, I, the very first time I met her was um, when uh, Heaven and Hell were doing a signing okay. uh, for that Heaven and Hell album. And it was at a Blockbuster video. Not Blockbuster, I'm sorry. That's it's even older. Wow, we're talking about Blockbuster video. What's that stupid place called? Best Buy. Best Buy. Yeah. It was at a Best Buy in San Bernardino, okay. which... Is, is where she lives, funnily enough, and Bob lived in San Bernardino, which is far for us, and, and it's like they're having a signing in fucking San Bernardino of all places, okay. And Best Buy so, did like a special with that album, too. I think you got like a yeah. CD or DVD or something. Yeah, and you got a ticket okay. for the signing if you bought the record. Okay. So my wife, I, 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 she's all, I'm going to call Bob. Bob, get me and Red a CD so we have the wristband so we can do the signing with you guys. And so Bob would drive over to Best Buy and get us, you know, get us our, our CDs. And it's funny because like everybody I knew in the metal scene was at this signing all the way in San Bernardino, everybody from LA, Orange County, like everybody was at this. The line was around the world. It was insane. So we're all standing in this line, hundreds of metalheads and a lot of friends of us. And we're all, we're all hanging out together, waiting to get in. And this girl comes up to us with this, uh, like, you know, this hand, handheld, like, uh, video camera mm -hmm. and starts interviewing people about Dio and about Black Sabbath and about heavy metal and starts asking. And she's interviewing just random people or whatever. And it turns out that that was Melissa. And right. that was the first time I had met her was with, with Bob. He's like, Bob's, that was my friend, Melissa. And she interviewed me and Lillian and my, my wife, Lillian, a bunch of us there. Jason was there. Mike Bominator was there. We were all there. And we went in and, and saw and, you know, met heaven and hell yeah. and did the whole, the whole experience. And then some months later, Dio passes away mm. and then they have the Dio funeral mm -hmm. at Forest Lawn in LA. Right. And who do I run into again? Mm. Melissa. And we run into her again. So we start seeing her at Iron Maiden and then, you know, and so I was doing the Stygian crown thing. We started writing songs in, I'd, I'd say realistically probably around 2013. Oh, okay. And wow. yeah. me and Nelson and Jason, and we had, uh, we had a few different people come in and try to play guitar. It was one point where um, even Adrian uh, came down to jam with us and sing with us or whatever. Early on when the whole thing was coming together, I was, I was kind of thinking more of the death doom thing. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I didn't want to do that 
And so when we started writing songs, I started feeling like, you know, I'm just kind of painting that same old wagon. I'm doing the same old shit. I'm not, I'm not doing anything that's new to what I've already done. We, we had spent some years and then, you know, of course, Grayville would get in between and we'd have tours and, and whatnot happening between that time. So it just more and more time kind of pushed that aside, pushed that aside. And then finally, um, we found another guitarist and he came in and his name is Alejandro. And we started jamming some the ideas that we had were more of the death doom type stuff. And I just told, I stopped and I said, you know, guys, I'm just not happy with this. I just don't like what we're doing. I don't want to do this. And Alejandro says, well, hey, let's just make this easy. What do you want to do? You know? And I said, well, if I had a choice, I'd be the drummer at Candlemas. And he's <laughs> like, okay. So then all of a sudden we start writing riffs that sound like Candlemas. And then the next thing you know, Alejandro can't, you know, jam with us anymore. So then Andy steps in and Andy is also now the current guitarist, along right. with Nelson on the other guitar and Jason on bass. And we started writing these songs. And then all of a sudden we had the three song demo this entire time with no singer. They're like, well, what do you guys, they're like, we'll just keep looking until we find the singer. And I'm like, you know, thinking to myself, it's like, you know, I'm going to have to hire someone or I'm going to have to go after some dude in some other band somewhere to come in and, and step in and just do the vocals for this because there's no way I'm going to find a singer. You call Messiah. Yeah, I, exactly. That was a thought because he wasn't even doing candle mass. <laughs> yeah. like, hey, maybe we can get Messiah, you know, <laughs> and I'll get Alan from Primordial, you know, I'll figure something out. Yeah. So what happened was, is that, uh, I was sitting in my living room and, and my wife and I were watching something or whatever. And she's sitting on her phone and she's like, what about Melissa? I'm like, what about Melissa? What? And she's like, what merciful fate? She's like, no, Melissa, our friend, Melissa. She's like, why don't you have her sing for your band? I didn't know she was a singer. And she hands me her phone and hands me a video of her singing hollow be thy name, like fucking belting it. Uh, And I'm like, what? (laughs) It's like, you know, and, and Jason, our bass player, has known her for years. I had no idea she was a musician at all. No, mm. no idea. And I said, as long as the person can sing in key, they're not like someone that doesn't know how to sing and they're going to try to sing and then we're going to pro tools them into harmonizing correctly. It's like, I'm not, I don't want anyone that is a, uh, is a faker or somebody right. that's doesn't have the skill. They have to be professionally trained singer. And for and, music as melodic as Stygian Crown, you can't fake it. it it's going to show right away. So it's it's got yeah. And then people will be like, oh wow, well, it's a great band with a shitty singer. So yeah. like you know, I, I I you know I didn't want to do that. So when she showed me that video, I'm like, holy shit! Like okay, so I call her and I'm like, hey, and I explain what why I'm calling and what's happening, and she's like, yeah, I'm into it. And I'm like, you want to just like, let me send you the songs. I said, we already, see, at that point, we had already recorded that three-song demo. It was already recorded. We just didn't have vocals to it. It had the leads and everything. It was done. It just needed vocals. So I said, here, let me just send you the songs. Take a listen. If you like what we're playing, here's the lyrics. The lyrics I wrote, I, I had lyrics for two of the songs. I said, here's lyrics to the songs. See what you can do with this. So a couple weeks later. Uh, she shows up to Nelson, our guitarist, has a like a, has a home studio. You know, we meet her at his home studio. You know, he sets up a mic for her. And she just immediately just killing it. She did things that I had no concept of what could be done there. She just like, 
you know, she just added these moments that were like, you know, I, I would have, I, I don't know how to instruct anyone how to be a singer. I can mm-hmm. tell you how to do death metal shit, but like being Ronnie James Dio, I mean, forget it. I, yeah. I, I don't have a concept of that. And so she just went in and started putting out these ideas. And then the only thing I could really say is like, okay, use less words in this part, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, bring the syllables down these yeah. right now you're doing 12 syllables give me eight you yeah. know so like stupid things like that yeah. and then finally she uh she you know she just put the stuff down and me and him were like oh my god you know and our other guitarist shows up and he, andy sits down and she's just like they're going over the part and nelson turns to andy and goes uh so what are you going to do with your first million dollars <laughs> And we all just start laughing. We're like, holy shit, you know? So then we're just like, you know, we, she came in and, and then all of a sudden, you know, she come into rehearsal, you know, she came up with some, some uh, song ideas. And then, you know, we, we showed her what other stuff we had and we just integrated her into the band. Now we're at the point where we're writing music together at a starting point. And that album was like, okay, we have these three demo songs. And then we have these other songs that we started putting together after this. It didn't, it, the album is just kind of like to us, it's like, I'm not going to say thrown together because that sounds so like, that sounds so like half-ass, which it wasn't half-ass, but it just kind of felt like there wasn't a starting point and an ending uh-huh. point with that. Yeah. While writing the next album is like, we're writing everything together from yeah. the very start of it. Not saying that, you know, I mean, it could turn out that the first album is way better than anything that we've, we could ever come up with afterwards. I mean, I don't think so, but it's possible. You know, it's also possible it could be the greatest shit we've ever written too. So you know, there's always that as well. But yeah. so that's uh, yeah, that's in process right now. Then yeah, we have like uh, I'll put it this way: we have three songs completely written, and Melissa has like I think she said eight, maybe more okay. songs that she's written on her own. Um, she's like, we're just sitting there, kind of going, uh, "Can you pump the brakes just a little bit?" You're <laughs> you're killing us like we can't get through all this stuff and you you have these like she's just got so many amazing ideas it's like oh my god i'm drowning in all this it's like come on man just you know chill out a little bit let us kind of catch up to you you know we're we're a lot slower than you yeah you know yeah that's a great problem to have this is the greatest problem to have but it's just weird too because like we're not used to like she will come up with uh these songs that are like she's written on piano so she writes that you hear the piano part and then her singing over it like the like on uh on the album the song up from the depths she, that entire, that main portion of that song was written on piano so she writes the parts in piano and then sings over them and us being us we're just like how the fuck do i write a riff out of that you know, mm. <laughs> i make a riff out of this key this piano piece you know so that that's been the challenge for us right now because i mean we, we constantly joke about the fact that, you know, hey, Melissa, we're not, you're a real musician. We are not real musicians, okay? So, like, you know, you start talking about things, we have no idea what you're talking about. So, we're just in there, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh. You know, you, have you paid attention to our other band, Gravehill? You know, it's, it's, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting for an, are, an, an amazing amount of reasons. Are you writing most of the lyrics? I know you did most of that in Morgion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, technically, I really wrote all the lyrics in Morgion, but okay. I wrote all the lyrics in Keen of the Crow. Um, okay. I, I, I really enjoy doing them. It, to be honest, Melissa is an amazing lyricist. She has great ideas. 
And I just kind of felt like after I gave her my initial ideas and then she's, you know, started writing the lyrics, you know, for the other songs on, on the album, I was like, yeah, I need to step away from this and let her mm. just do her thing. That's another thing like in Gravehill too, like Mike wrote all the lyrics that he, that he did. And in my opinion, there shouldn't have been anyone that should have writ wrote those lyrics other than him. He was the most appropriate person for the job. And uh, then you have Melissa and I'm like feeling the same again. You know, like I, I really don't want to hold her back from any of that because she's so good at it. I mean, when I read the lyrics to um, Two Coins for the Ferryman, I was like, these are some of the best lyrics I've ever written. I I've ever been a part of that she wrote. Like mm -hmm. she... Like I'm a part of the song. I helped write the song, but these lyrics are the best things I've ever read that I've ever been a part of. And I didn't write them, right. you know? So I don't have that pompous attitude of like, Oh, I did that. You know, like, mm -hmm. no, she did that. <laughs> she yeah. did all of that. That's like, wow. Trust me. Like I I'm still like, I'm, I mean, we're all in a honeymoon with her right now. So we're all just like, Oh man, she's the greatest thing since sliced <laughs> bread. You know, it's like, she really is. She's, she's, she's great. She's so not like being in a in a band with so many other people I've I've met over the years that are singers in bands, you know, like yeah. singer singers. And there's not one bit of pretension. She's not pompous about anything. She's very direct and very like very uh, humble. You know, she's like has no concept of how incredibly talented she is. Like she just completely shoots right past her. And I mean, to be honest, like that's even more amazing than the fact of how talented she is, is how just like how humble and how great yeah. she is as a person. She's just so awesome. Well, that's fantastic. Um, I mean, I'm glad that it's that it's working and that even in the midst of this, you know, this crazy world that we're living in, it hasn't slowed the momentum down too much. You're I mean, you're right. sitting together, you're writing, you're being creative, you're, you know, you're sounds like you're you're writing for the next record. So we've got that to look forward to. And and hopefully, you know, things will open back up and then, you know, you guys can start playing out again. You need yep. to come up north because I need to I need to witness this firsthand. Oh, no, we'd love to. <laughs> we, we want to come play Frisco in Portland for sure. Um, it's hilarious because we have like all these festivals in Europe and I'm like, man, this is amazing, you know, but now I can't play them because right. of what's yeah. happening. So everything just keeps pushing back to 2022 now. So Yeah, yeah we'll um, get there. We will. But, yeah we'll get there it's, yeah. it's good i mean well, i mean if anything we'll have another album to support at that time plus i mean outside of that because i didn't really make it really well known to anybody but i'm doing another uh death metal band something different than Gravehill. something that's a little bit more more on the swedish death metal okay. hm2 type you know entombed dismember type thing. thing yeah yeah um we're i i i've been wanting to do that for quite a while and uh i I hooked up with uh, a few mutual minded friends and uh, guys from other bands that I've played with a million times. And uh, we were putting together a, a demo. I'll, I'll, I'll be releasing that this summer. Great. Fairly full soon. circle. We're almost done. We, huh? I said full circle. I mean, you started wanting to play yeah. an entombed kind of a thing yeah. way back in 1990, yeah. <laughs> 30 yeah. years later. 30 years later, I'm doing Entombed with HM2 pedals again. Yeah, this was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's kind of how, yeah, kind of how it worked out. It's yeah. funny, too, because, like, the dudes I'm in, uh, doing this with, I think that's another thing, too, to kind of point out is I kind of wanted to do this, too, just simply because 
I've been doing Grave Hill for so long, and it's been me and Jason and, and Nelson. And now me and Nason, Jason and Nelson are doing Stitching Crown. So I'm, I'm thinking just to be able to kind of do something else to where I forgot what it's like to play with a, in a room with everybody in the band I'm with, I haven't played with for the last decade. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, me as a person I, and as a musician, I just kind of needed a, an escape to kind of, you know, sharpen my skills with other people that right. I, you know, I'm not used to playing with, right. you know, I, I think that's kind of important. I think that will kind of make me hungry for wanting to do Grave Hill at another point. You know, honestly, Gravehill's the band that I've I've never got up to four records. That's mm. like another joke too. Like every band I've ever been in, I've never got up to record number four. And Gravehill got to record number four, so it's like, okay. well, let's get to record number five. You know, yeah. I could be record number five. I've never done that before. Yeah. So let's get to record number eight. There's that. Too. Yeah. 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 Hey, yeah. You know, <laughs> it could be like uh, so many other bands out there. It's like I don't even know how many bands they have, uh, records they have anymore. It's like Jesus. Yeah. Hey, How many records Mass. does Unleashed have now? Like seventeen. So. Candlemas is case in point. Also, um, oh yeah, they just keep oh, making yeah. records, and I keep buying them, but I don't know how many there are. Yeah, me too. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I, I, I especially. It's kind of funny. Um, there was one album that I missed somewhere in that, and Nelson and I were uh, because Nelson, who plays guitar in Sydney and Crown and Gravehill, he also plays bass in Divine Eve. Okay, and. Um, he and I had some shows that we did with Divine Eve um, back in 2018. After we did this long tour, we had these shows that we missed. So we brought back Divine Eve to do those shows we missed. And um, him and I were driving home from Portland. And uh, there was this Candlemas album I had missed. And uh, I, I apologize. I, I can't remember the name of it. It's, it's not one of the ones with uh, Robert Lowe. It's after that. Mm. And we, I put it on. I was like, hey, there's a Candlemas album I had never heard of. And we, we put it on, him and I were driving. And it's like, dude, this is like, I, I can't believe I missed this. <laughs> you know what I mean? This album is fucking amazing. They're all good. I don't know. You, you know, to be honest, I, I also think getting older, too. It's like, I, I, I maybe it's not getting older. I think it's just me. Is like, I just kind of allow music to kind of escape me sometimes. And I kind of miss miss things that everyone else has been privy to for two three years and then here's me going hey have you heard this record <laughs> like yeah dummy i like three four years ago well nah. i mean it's it, we're getting older it's harder to it's harder to keep up and there's so much right now that demands our attention yeah. you, you know you talked about going to that store when you were a kid i mean i had those stores too as much as there was and it felt overwhelming to be in there Right now, we can get anything we want at any time just by the click of a button. True. There's something great True. about that freedom, but at the same time, our attention is going in so many different places, it's hard to settle on one thing. And I think True. having some limits, I mean, that's one of the things that I, I kind of appreciate reflecting back onto when I was a kid, you know, you had so much money, you had enough for a record or two, and you bought that and you absorbed it and it became like a part of you. And now it's hard to settle on one spot like that. So I think that's something that I don't know, we just have to be more cognizant of. And if you miss something, yeah. because there's so much, and there's always time and room to go back and get it, you know, later on and just rediscover or discover it after the fact. Well, also, too, we have the option right now that you could have like a service like Amazon Music or Bandcamp or whatever, you can go in and you can look up bands, and you can actually listen to their songs before you decide on buying the record. That's true too. I think that's been a huge thing, too, because I, as a kid, it's like, you know, 
should I buy this record? I know it's got a skull on it. I think it'll be cool. And then you get it and you take it home and you put it on. It's like, God, this sucks. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you take it back and you're like, what, well, what's wrong with it? Oh, it's like playing, it's scratched or it's fucked up, you know? Oh, okay. And they give you your money back. You tell them you don't like it. They won't give you your money back. <laughs> I bought I remember that too. I bought a Thor record from a used record shop when I was a kid and I took it home and I did not like it. I listened to about half of it and said, I, I can't do this. I got on the bus, spent another hour going back to the store. I took it back to the guy and I said, I can't do it. And he said, what's wrong with that? He says, it's, just, it's, it's terrible. I said, can I trade it for something? And he said, all right, you just bought it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you, I'll give you credit. Oh, that's nice. So I got the first Bathory album and, and that all was right with my world after that. Oh, there you go. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I remember, I remember, I remember uh, my buddy uh, went to high school with, uh, it was like my freshman year of high school and he had that tape he had like he was like that kid that was like more informed than me and my best friend he just yeah. i don't know what it was he just was more in, he had more info than we did and he just showed up to my house with this two-sided cassette case you know mm -hmm. what i mean like one yeah. end you opened up and the other and he shows up and he sets that thing down he opens it up and it's like oh my god and then i remember back because i remember seeing the cover for that bathroom record and I'm like, I want to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the drummer sucks. I'm like, I don't care. Put it on. You know, and I was like, ah, oh, yes. You yeah. Know? And I put on, dude, the guitarist in this band sucks. I'm like, I don't care. Put this on. Yeah. So, yeah, I was like, yeah, I just remember those period of time. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, listen, we've gone for a long time, longer than I anticipated and that I asked you for. Okay. Um, but I have really enjoyed um hanging out and doing this today yeah absolutely just, me too talking about morgion which you know was a big they were a big deal for me back then and you know and continue sure. to be you know a band i return to you and i'm you know super stoked about what's happening with stygian crown and maybe i can get melissa on this at some point i'd love to get her story love to hear about her oh yeah absolutely yeah for sure i'll talk to her yeah, yeah. That'd be great. thanks i appreciate it no absolutely thank you